lovely to be here this morning with you all. And I don't know about you, but I've been really enjoying spending time in Proverbs and all that it has to teach us about living in this world in a way that has godly wisdom. And today we're going to continue that as we read and hear about Proverbs 9. And I'm also going to be reading a few verses from Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. But before we start, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've made us known. Thank you that you've loved us. And we pray as we spend time in your word this morning, reading about Proverbs 9 and hearing from Wong, that you'll really help us to focus and open our hearts to hear your word. In, this, in your name we pray. Amen. So Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come, eat my food and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. And Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, it, and it fell with a great crash. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jackie, for reading for us. Hello, everyone. It's lovely to be with you. Uh, for our guests, my name is Wal. Um, a couple of years ago, in the newspaper, 
there was an article uh, about the advice that parents should give their kids to help them be successful in life. Um, at one point, the author gave a list of the top eight things that he had tried to teach his children on this topic, and they included number five, know that you have your own answers within you, you just need the time and space to let them come out. Be proud of your answers, because even if they didn't appear to work out, they will next time. And then number six, uh, don't automatically believe what anyone else says, uh, believe in the feeling that something gives you inside. Now, I imagine that most of us uh, relate to that desire to want to know how to live a successful life. And I'm almost certain that all of us who are parents know exactly what it's like to want to be able to pass that knowledge onto our children. But it does strike me, as perhaps it strikes you also, that those two bits of advice are just hopelessly subjective, kind of horrendously self-referential. Um, surely we need a better guide at how to succeed in life than simply looking within. Well, over the last couple of weeks, as we've heard this morning already, we've been beginning to read through this book of Proverbs here at church in which Solomon, son of David, the king of Israel, with one exception, arguably the most wise person ever to have lived because his wisdom came not just through careful reflection and a diligent search, but was also given to him as a gift from God above. And in this book of Proverbs, we hear him seeking to pass on to his son, who will be the king after him, wisdom and instruction and words of insight so that he might succeed in everything he does. And this is not just for the son of Solomon, of course. This way of wisdom is for all of us, even us here today, this morning. Because instead of turning us back in on ourselves, like our well-meaning journalist, what Solomon does is lift our gaze upward and outward to the God of love and faithfulness, who has so wisely made the world and who calls us to reflect that love and faithfulness, both for our sake and the sake of others, that we too might be successful in all that we do. And this morning we're at chapter 9. And I think this chapter, more than any other in the book, brings us to an urgent and unavoidable fork in the road. Um, a crossroad at which every one of us has to stand and we have to make what is just about the most important decision we ever will about what kind of lives we're going to live. Now, just to unpack that a little bit, the book of Proverbs has 31 chapters. If you look across to the start of chapter 10, uh, you'll probably see a heading, something along the lines of the Proverbs of Solomon. And uh, this is where we find what most of us remember when we think about this book, those kind of short little one-sentence sayings that try to distill for us something significant about the way life works. So chapter 10, 26, for example... As vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are sluggards to those who send them. And it just kind of stands alone there as an idea and it connects to others thematically as the book goes on, but it's kind of just a sentence on its own. Now the Proverbs of Solomon, they go for about 12 and a half chapters. Uh, from halfway through chapter 22, another collection begins a bit smaller and there's, there's other ones that take us through to the end of the book. But Proverbs 1 to 9, those are something completely different totally unique to the rest of the book. Um, really, they kind of function as a long introduction to everything that follows. If we were trying to describe them, 
Uh, we might call them a series of lectures, if you like, from Solomon to his son, kind of a passionate fatherly appeal that tries to prepare him for the deep dive on wisdom that's going to begin in chapter 10. And you see, that's why chapter 9 has such an urgent kind of sense of decision-making about it. That's why it's such a big fork in the road. Um, the introduction is done. The fatherly appeal is about out of words. Um, the, the Proverbs themselves are about to be laid out for us. The deep dive on wisdom is about to begin. And, and Solomon wants his son to understand, not just that there are two paths before him, but that he is going to have to make a choice about which path he will follow. Well, that's kind of some background and preparation. Let's get into chapter 9. You might have noticed this as Jackie was reading for us, but at the beginning and at the end of this chapter, there are two competing banquet invitations, one from wisdom and one from folly. Um, there are a bunch of similarities to them. That's absolutely deliberate, and we're meant to notice it. For example, in both invitations, wisdom and folly are personified. That is, they are kind of presented as women who eagerly call for our attention and our allegiance that we might come in and eat with them. And this is something that Solomon has been building through chapters 1 to 9, if you've kind of read through these chapters. I mean, chapter 8, uh, if you want to read it during the week, it's a beautiful chapter where wisdom speaks, as it were, about her role in creation. A beautiful chapter. So wisdom and folly, they're both personified. On top of that, they both have their own house. They both call out from the highest point in the city. Word for word, their invitation is the same. Let all who are simple come to my house. And word for word, um, their audience is the same, the target audience. Uh, to those who have no sense, she says. They both have an offer of food and drink. And so there's all these similarities on the surface. But for all that, the deeper differences are much more important and I think there's three of them, the women, the meals, and then the outcomes. So first of all, the women. Consider the way that wisdom is introduced to us in verse 1. Uh, wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She's prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She's also set out her table. She's sent out her servants, and she calls from the highest point of the city. There's a lot of work here, isn't there? There's diligent preparation from a generous hostess. Um, Lady Wisdom is no sluggard. Uh, she has built, she has set up, she has prepared, she's mixed, she's sent out. This isn't just something casual, slapped together at the last minute. And um, this is much more like arriving kind of for a wedding reception and you look at this banquet hall and you can see how, how meticulously every place at every table has been laid out. And you just know that out in the kitchen, every, every dish has been perfectly cooked. And, and that's kind of what it's like with this banquet. All for the benefit of those who will come here to eat. Compare that with woman folly, who in verse 13, she's an unruly woman. That means she's loud, she's noisy. She's simple. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by. So she's built no house. She's set up no pillars. She's prepared no meat, nor any wine. She's sent out no servants, no messengers. Just lazily, she sits there. 
sort of a poor imitation of her much better rival. So there's a difference in these two women, right? A second difference is in the meals. Uh, The banquet of wisdom is slaughtered meat and bread and mixed wine. Whereas Folly's meal is mere water and bread, and, and not just any water and bread, but stolen water and bread eaten in secret. Uh, Back in chapter 5, Solomon had used the image of not stolen water to teach his son about marital faithfulness, marital fidelity. Uh, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And so perhaps here, the stolen water, it seems like it, it, it could be a way of speaking about adultery of marital unfaithfulness. Perhaps the bread points in the same direction, given that it's also got to be eaten in secret. This is what folly offers. Like adultery to marriage, short-term pleasure without any cost. Instant gratification without any commitment. Immediate benefit, without any love and faithfulness. It's all an illusion though, because third, the most disturbing difference in these rival invitations is their final outcome. But you see, verse 6, to accept wisdom's invitation is to take up the way of light and life and understanding Uh, This is to live the successful life, a blessing for both you and others. Whereas to accept folly's invitation, well, verse 18, that is to choose a path that leads only to death. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson said, sooner or later, we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. And that's the logic of the book of Proverbs, as it is so often in the scriptures. There's an unbreakable connection between deed and destiny. So live this way and get this outcome. Live that way and get that outcome. It's just that in the world made by the God of love and faithfulness, who calls us to reflect back that love and faithfulness in our lives, sometimes the outcome that follows the wise or foolish life can only be accurately seen in the long run. And so the short-term sweetness of stolen water, that is horribly deceptive. It's a distraction that takes our eyes off the reality that's really going on. The immediate delight of of food eaten in secret, that is an unreliable guide to the way things really are. We we may as well try to teach each other that all the answers are within us and we just simply have to believe in the feeling something gives us. Perhaps we can think of the first man and woman back in the garden secretly eating from the tree God had forbidden them to eat from. And even though he had warned them so plainly what would happen if they ate from that tree, they were just so distracted by the fact that the fruit looked pleasing to the eye and it was good for gaining knowledge 
And so they accepted the invitation. If only we could see all the guests who've gone in and accepted Folly's invitation before us and we could see where they are now. Maybe then we would be wiser. What Folly offers is a no-through road in place of a highway. Well, there's our two banquet invitations. What about verses 7 to 12 in the middle? What are they about? Uh, Fundamentally, I think they're about two different groups of people. You can see them there in verses 7 to 9. There's one and a half verses on the mocker and the wicked. And the next one and a half verses are about the righteous and the wise. And it's a comparison, really, a contrast about the way these two groups respond to instruction and rebuke. And uh, in the case of the mocker and the wicked, that's very, very badly. Because the one who instructs them and rebukes them, they receive only insults and abuse and hatred. And maybe we can think forward and we hear Jesus teaching... Don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then they'll turn and devour you. On the flip side, though, the wise and the righteous, well, to rebuke them and to instruct them, that's a blessing for everyone involved because not only will they not turn on their instructor, but they themselves will add to their learning and they will grow wiser still. Uh, What is it, though, that really unlocks these two different responses? What is it that makes one group wise and the other foolish? Well, it's the same thing we see throughout the whole book, uh, which is verse 10, really, if we wanted one to land on. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Uh, A few weeks ago, Uh, Sarah and I were fortunate to go to the Opera House and to hear uh, Gustav Mahler's Second Symphony. Uh, It's a massive work and um, it goes about 80 minutes. It's it's got a massive orchestra, uh, much bigger than normal. Uh, At one point it has 10 French horns instead of the usual four. It's got 10 trumpets instead of the usual three. It's got three timpanists instead of the usual one. Uh, For extra good measure, it's got even two triangles. I'm not fully convinced what difference that makes, but maybe Marla noticed, I'm not sure. It's got a couple of vocal soloists. It's even got a full choir. You can see them there at the background. Um, from a music history point of view, which I know is not everyone's cup of tea, but, I, you know, it's something for me, um, the choir is interesting. Uh, if you know anything about this, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, uh, the final movement of that, was really a groundbreaker using a choir in the context of an orchestral symphony. So the Ode to Joy. Um, In fact, it was such a groundbreaker that a number of the major composers who came after him, including Gustav Mahler, they absolutely laboured under the pressure of trying somehow to match what Beethoven did. I mean, some of them zipped through eight symphonies and just hit a wall as they tried to write their ninth because they couldn't, it wouldn't match up. And, And a bunch of them went, I've got to throw a choir in here somewhere. And they just laboured under this pressure of, of the standard that Beethoven set. He'd become the benchmark. He'd become the measure, if you like, which helped you understand whether or not a composer had really mastered their art. Well, according to Solomon, the benchmark, the kind of measure for working out whether a person has mastered the art of living in this world that God has made with love and faithfulness, is fear of the Lord 
and knowledge of the Holy One. Remember that when the word Lord is written in small capital letters like this, that is the way the Israelites used to speak about God by name. They spoke about him personally, using the name that God had given to them through Moses. Because you see, they knew that the God of love and faithfulness who made the whole world had also saved them and brought them in and established them in the promised land under the rule of kings from a line of David like Solomon and his son that they might now as God's saved people live with love and faithfulness in the world that God had made and be a blessing for each other and for the nations See, this is what it means to fear the Lord and to have knowledge of the Holy One. It means to live rightly before him with reverent awe as the people he has saved in the world that he has made. And if only Solomon's son will take up this way of life, Solomon assures him in verse 11, for through wisdom your days will be many and years will be added to your life. It doesn't quite have the same clarity of eternal life that we know is promised in the New Testament. But it is really the Old Testament way of speaking about the same reality, isn't it? This very open-ended view of the long years that will come from living with fear of the Lord and obeying him and trusting him. So, okay, we've heard the two invitations. We've looked at the bit in the middle about these two groups of people. Let's put it all together. What's it all about? What does it mean? I think the key is realising that the two invitations from wisdom and folly, they are aimed at a different type of person to the two groups described in verses 7 to 12. Because the two invitations to, from wisdom and folly, um, they are for the simple in verse 4 and verse 16. They are for the one who lacks sense. Uh, in other words, they are for the naive, the young and impressionable, the still not yet committed one way or other, the still forming, still settling who they are. In the world of Proverbs 1 to 9, we're thinking Solomon's son. Perhaps in our terms, we might think generally of a teenager in their later years of high school or even their first couple of years out. And they're on the cusp of full adulthood, not yet completely independent to their families, but almost there. They're making big decisions, not just about what they will study or what kind of job they might pursue, but, but even more about their character and their conduct. As we heard last week, their head, their heart, their hands their perspective, their practice, their passions, what kind of men and women they are going to be, what kind of lives they are going to live, whether to forsake the Lord or fear him. It's that point in life that some of our children are up to right at the moment, isn't it? It's that point in life where others of our children will get to over the next five, ten years. And wisdom and folly are calling to them. Two different ways to live, although really just one of them is a way to live. 
And you see, as both parents and as a church family around them, we must impress upon them this choice that they face. Just as Solomon sought to impress it upon his son. And despite all the similarities that are there on the surface, there's actually more than enough difference between the two invitations to make the right choice completely clear. But just in case they're still sitting on the fence, just in case they haven't yet figured out which way they're going to go as they approach this fork in the road, the middle verses are there to clinch the case. to show what it looks like in the lives of those for whom the decision is already done and dusted. The one group that has accepted wisdom's invitation and gone into a banquet of growing wiser still and living long years, a long successful life. The other group has accepted folly's invitation and, oh sure, in the short term it might seem scintillating, but in the long run it has only led to suffering and death. Now, so far, I've been sketching this out really in terms of our older teenagers and our young adults, and they're on the cusp of independent adulthood, and generally, I think that fits the kind of setting that we have in Proverbs 1 to 9, but of course, we all know that age alone is no guarantee of maturity. And most of us will be able to think, perhaps, of people who by the year of their birth are adults, but they still have the temperament and life maturity of a youth. And this choice is there before them. And even for many of us who may feel, look, I've made this decision in terms of the big picture orientation of my life. I've made a decision. This decision is for us too. I mean, even if we have chosen folly, There's always the hope in the Bible. There's always the offer, the invitation of full repentance. Of turning away from our old way of living and turning back to God. If that's where you're up to, if you hear all this this morning, please come and talk to us. We would love to speak with you about it. But I know that many of us who are here this morning have already quite self-consciously sought to choose the path of wisdom fearing God over forsaking him. But even for us, it's not as if this decision is once and done, set and forget. No, this is every day, isn't it? It's every situation, it's every friendship, it's every conversation, every time we speak, every time we go to work, every time we sit down. Proverbs addresses all of those, doesn't it? Every day in countless ways, the same choice is ever before us, whether we are young or old, male or female, youth or adult or child. How will we live in this world that God has made as the people he has saved? By wisdom or by folly? Will we fear the Lord or forsake him? In our second reading earlier on, we heard uh, Jesus, uh, the son of David, who is even greater than Solomon. And he fulfills Proverbs 9, just as he fulfills every Old Testament hope and expectation and pattern. Uh, Even from childhood, he feared the Lord. He 
had knowledge and understanding of the Holy One. He listened to his father's voice. He trusted and obeyed. And, and so early on in Luke's gospel, we are told how he grew in wisdom and stature before both God and man. That's exactly what we'd expect from the book of Proverbs, isn't it? For the person who lives this life. And yes, as a man, his days were few and his years were cut short. And that doesn't really sound like Proverbs 9. But can we not say that by raising him from the dead, God has added years to his life, even granted him eternal life. And he too has prepared a banquet. A heavenly banquet. And he invites everyone to come and eat with him. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens up the door, I'll come in and eat with you. He's got a banquet. He wants us to eat with him. He wants to eat with us. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he tells us how teaching us the very same truth as Proverbs 9. Different words, different images, but the same truth. Two builders, one wise, one foolish. Both of them have heard his teaching about repentance and faith and life in the kingdom of God. But where one puts his words into practice, the other doesn't. And so brothers and sisters... Here is the choice we face this morning, today, and every day. A choice for both us and our children. To fear this Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of this Holy One, that is understanding. So as the musos come up and we sing our final song, let me lead us in prayer. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Proverbs and for this chapter particularly. Thank you for the choice it sets before us. We pray that you would help us to choose wisdom over folly, that we would choose life over death. Help us to fear you and to have knowledge of you rather than to forsake you and go our own way. Help us to see that not just in the big picture of our lives, but in the daily moments that we all go through, in every relationship, in every moment of speech and action, that we would be those who seek to answer the call of wisdom. We pray that you'd help us with this for Christ's sake. Amen.